Acts chapter 14. We are going through the book of Acts. It is the historical book of the New Testament. It is, the, it, is, it is what takes place during that first century after the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and how these churches got started. And we, were, we saw the, the first coming into your first you know, uh, 10, 11, 12 chapters that really focuses on, on Peter and his ministry. Then the rest of the book has switched and it focuses on this man named Paul. And he is in the middle of his first missionary journey. We're going to be finishing up his first missionary journey here this morning. But we're going to start reading in verse number 19. Now, if you remember last week, the context is this. He is, he is still in uh, Lystra. He is there. Um, he had performed the miracle. The people assumed this was uh, uh, Jupiter and Mercury come down, uh, um, and uh, they were getting ready to do sacrifices unto Paul and Barnabas because the miracle they saw. And Paul, of course, said, no, 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 that, 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 that's idolatry. That's wrong. You've been worshiping nothing. We represent the true God. We're men just like you. And so that has just taken place when we pick up in verse number 19. It says this, And there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium, who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city. And the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples, and exhorting them to continue in the faith, that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. When they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after that they had passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. When they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Attilia. And then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. When they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Let's go ahead and pray. Father in heaven, Lord, I love you. I ask your blessing now. I pray that you would work. I pray for your mercy and your grace and your help this morning. I pray you would control me, control what I say and how I say it, Lord. I pray your word would be a help that it would feed us and draw us closer. Lord, please give me the words to say. I pray this time would not be in vain. I pray, Lord, you minimize the distractions that can so easily pull our thoughts off the word of God. Lord, I pray there's even perceptions that are off right now. Lord, I pray that you'd work on hearts and help us just to focus on your word. That it would change us and help us. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has never truly been converted. Lord, I pray for that conversion this morning, of that, of that conviction and that drawing, that even this morning they repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray and ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul, we're in the middle of this first missionary journey. Uh, remember, they, they left the church in Antioch. That was the sending church, Antioch of Syria. And that church would become the key church, really, of the first century. The church at Jerusalem, which had the apostles, had come under much persecution, and that church completely dispersed. 
there were not many left at the church in Jerusalem. So the church that we see this rising up and, and coming to this place of prominence is the church of Antioch in Syria. Paul and Barnabas served as pastors there uh, for a time until the Lord called them out in Acts chapter 13 for this very first missionary journey. The church in Antioch is your first established Gentile church in the New Testament. And so Paul and Barnabas had headed out, and, and we've been following their travels. They came, of course, to Cyprus. We saw the governor of Cyprus converted. Then they traveled to the mainland there, at what would be today's southern Turkey. Uh, um, uh, they stayed in Perga for a while in, in the province of Pamphylia. And, and we don't have any record of Paul preaching there. He will today. Um, but at that time, we did not. We believed that he was very sick at that time. That's taken from a, from a verse in the book of Galatians. It's there where John Mark left, though. John Mark goes goes back and he returns. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, though, they head into the region of Galatia. Again, the book of Galatians in your New Testament, it was the book that, that the Holy Spirit used to Paul to send back to those churches that he is establishing on this trip. And so Paul heads up first to Antioch of Pisidia. Um, that would be a treacherous journey. We dealt with that. Just traveling to Antioch of Pisidia would, would be quite the feat. They get there. Of course, they're preaching. They have converts. But again, uh, the Jews become jealous. They stir up leaders in the community, devout women. And they are, they are thrown out of the town. From Antioch, uh, Antioch of Pisidia, they head down to Iconium. And while they were in Iconium, they once again faced persecution and they had to get out of town. That was a little different type of persecution they faced there. Uh, but it, the, the day finally came and they had to leave there as well. Uh, once they left there, they come to Lystra. Once in Lystra, they, again, they begin to preach and, and get a, a, a church established. And Paul performs that miracle. And again, they thought the gods have come down. Here is... Here is uh, Jupiter and, and Mercury representing, of course, Zeus and I can't think of the other god right now. It's one on my mind. Representing the, those gods of that day, those pagan gods that aren't even real. But that's what they thought. There was a tradition behind it. We looked at that as to why they thought those two men were that. And so they were getting ready to do sacrifice and offerings unto Paul and Barnabas. And Paul realizes what's happened. You know, he puts a stop to it immediately. And so we were looking at it. I focused on what those messages on things that I thought would help us in our Christian life as we begin serving God. And the fact is, you will face persecution. If persecution doesn't work to knock you down, the devil will come at you different ways. We, we looked at it last week when they thought Paul was a god and how all they came to him. And they, Paul and Barnabas realized, wait, they think we're gods. And how that easily could have turned into a prideful situation. They could have that conversation. Boy, Barnabas, we've got a great opportunity here. I mean, think of all that we could do for the cause of Christ because they think we're gods. But, of course, he avoided that. He stayed humble. Paul was a man who certainly realized he was, what he accomplished was by the grace of God. So the avenue of pride did not work either. So we're going to be looking at some things today as we finish up the, his first missionary journey that I, I believe will help us. Keep in mind, Paul was clearly a man that the Lord used to literally change the world. He was a man who would say in his last epistle written in 2 Timothy, how I have finished my course, I have kept the faith. He accomplished what God wanted him to accomplish. He finished right, he persevered. But along the way, there was many things he had to face, there were many opportunities he had to quit. But he never did. 
I'm sure that's something all of us should desire. I hope that's something all of us desire to say, that at the end of our life, that we can honestly say before the Lord, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. But in order to do that, we have to fight with the the world, the flesh, and the devil. We see that in Paul's life. As we go through the books of Acts, the different things he experienced, but a man who did stay faithful. So today we will see Paul and Barnabas finishing up the very first missionary journey and returning home. We're going to look at different things in their life from this passage. Remember, the the Christian life is very much fueled by your desire for God. I dealt with this, I think it was on Wednesday night, when I was talking about passion just for a minute. How passionate is powerful, but it's very narrow. There's a constant battle for your passion. For something else to have your heart besides God. Uh, One of the biggest parts of the battle starts there. And guarding that. Even what I'm dealing with today is under the assumption already that God is who has your heart. He has your passion. And then from there we can see, okay, now, uh, God has my heart, He has my passion, but the road's not easy. There's things you have to face, there's things you have to battle. We're going to see some tremendous battles that Paul had to face. I think of the book of Colossians. Uh, It it sort of puts that in order, how the first two chapters of that four-chapter book deal with, it's very doctrinal in nature. It stresses the preeminence of Jesus Christ in those first two chapters. When you get to chapter 3, though, notice what what the Lord was doing there with those first two chapters. He's, he's, He's really trying to get you to understand who God is. Understand, he has the preeminence. He's he's trying to put in context what he did for you, who he is. This is the creator. He's trying to get that knowledge in you. So that when he comes to chapter 3, he makes the assumption, when he starts off, it changes gears in chapter 3 and 4. Chapter 3 and 4 become practical. They become practical because he's hoping you see the truth of who God is in chapter 1 and 2. So in chapter 3, he says, If ye then been risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Set your affections, your passion, your heart on things above, not on things below. That's what we're hoping, even, even with the trip heading to the Ark and the Creation Museum, that that will help set your affection on things above. It's sort of like a Colossians 1 and 2 trip. To see God is preeminent. That if ye then be risen with right, if you're saved, then you seek those things which are above. <clears throat> Four things that we're going to look at here this morning that will help us succeed in our Christian life. And this is under the assumption that, of course, the Lord has our heart and our passion. If you want to write these down quickly, sure, because I, I will cover a couple of these very quickly. I'll give the four right now. Number one, we're going to see they endured suffering. Number two, endeavored to strengthen. Number three, they had an expectation in the sovereign. Number four, they ended on the standard. Endured suffering, endeavored to strengthen, expectation in the sovereign, and they ended on the standard. So let's go ahead and 
get into this. Verses 19 and 20, they endured suffering. Says, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit, as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up, came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. So again, I've already set the context of this. They, just a minutes prior to this, they were worship, trying to worship Paul and Barnabas as gods. Just prior to this, that's what was taking place. And so there's sort of a perfect storm, though, that is brewing. Get the picture of this. So Paul had just come from where? Antioch of Pisidia and Iconium. Keep on, some of, these, some of these Jews that they're coming after Paul, they've traveled from Antioch coming into Lystra now. That's a hundred miles. That's, that's serious a journey to take in these days. And so they arrive in Lystra, and the perfect storm is there. Think what the people are feeling like. Here's Paul. They're getting ready to offer sacrifices, and Paul says, hold up. Do you understand? And he tells them, basically, you have been worshiping nothing. None of it's true. We're here to stop what you're doing. We're here to try and get you to turn unto the living God. Not something that's fake. I assure you that multitudes of those people felt humiliated when Paul said, we're just men like you. They were embarrassed. It's possible even some resentment was beginning to set in. Because many times, when you are humiliated like that, you tend to lash out at the person who did it. So, here's Paul and Barnabas. They're there. And in the midst of this storm that is brewing, Jews come from... Antioch and Iconium, and they want to stop this man, Paul. Well, they find an eager audience when they get to Lystra with what had taken place. They persuade the people. They persuade that Paul was evil. And again, it's true. Disillusioned people grow angry and sour. They, sour. they look to take out that resentment, and the opportunity has hit right now for that to happen. So the mob grows, and they decide they're going to stone him. I think that's a horrific sight. This mob took over. They were enraged. And you can think as people gather, when a mob gathers, the fact that numbers sort of give strength to it. It emboldens. You see everybody else there. So here's this mob. It's coming across town, searching for Paul, trying to find him. And they grab him. They find him. And I'm sure as was Jewish custom because the Jews from Antioch and Pisidia were leading this because they decided to stone him. That was a Jewish means of execution. They get him. They would have found a hillside. They would have threw him down. And the stones would have begun throwing at him. It would have been brutal. They stone him. The Bible says they're supposing he had been dead. He had been dead. Then the mob goes down. They grab his body, and just simply drag it to the dump outside the city. And that's where they leave him. So think about this. One minute, Paul's a god to be worshipped. The next minute, they want him dead. The crowd was so fickle. They adored him. Now they want to kill him. Notice, they forgot about the miracle they witnessed, didn't they? They forgot about the preaching that was so thought-provoking and wondering, is this man right? They forgot about the conviction on their heart that was pulling them towards truth. 
They were just enraged as their flesh took over. They allowed resentment, anger to control. When you get focused on self, you lose proper perspective. They forgot about his words in his preaching. Remember, Paul would speak with power. He was persuasive. And, and you can tell how, how, how we went through just in this missionary journey, how he would preach when it was just Gentiles or when it was just Jews. As you notice, as we went through this in the first two places, he always started with the law pointing to Christ. He didn't when he got here because he was dealing purely with Gentiles. He starts with the Creator. Many of whom converted. But they forgot all about that. They were embarrassed and they were angry. There's a great lesson here. Especially when it comes to the Christian life. It's true in any area of life. Listen, don't live for popularity. Don't. Don't live to please people, but live to please the Lord. The Bible says here, and this is interesting, they supposed he was dead. So the question is, I'm going to cover this just for a minute. Was he? Was Paul actually dead? Now, prior to this, had you asked me, I would have said, I believed he was. I don't now. Now that I've studied it out, I don't believe he was actually dead. It's possible he was. I agree with that. I used to make the connection with Paul knowing a man once caught up into the third heaven. But the timing didn't fit all of a sudden. The years that he mentions it doesn't fit with this. And more so was how the word supposing is used and what it actually means. Let me give you an example of it. It's used 15 times in the New Testament. The word has two meanings. First meaning is to have a custom, like it was custom to do this. You would use that word in that sense. The other meaning, though, is to suppose something as how we think of the word, as it is to think it's true, but it's not. That's primarily how the word is used in the New Testament, where a group thought something was true, but in reality, it was not true. They supposed, but they supposed wrong. And, of course, the context of the passage will bear that out. So we see this word used. Let me give you some examples. We won't turn there for time's sake, but I'll give you some examples. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 is this exact same Greek word. When Christ said, you think that I've come to destroy the law, but I have not. I've come to fulfill it. The word think there is the exact same word used here. They supposed what they believed to be true was that this man had come to destroy the law. Was that true? It was not. Uh, we see that used in Matthew chapter 20 in a parable, verses 9 and 10. Christ used the word again. This was the laborers at the end of the day. They supposed they were going to get greater wages. But was that true? It was not. They received less. What they thought was true was not. Another great example, this is just the last one I'll use, but there's more than that. This is primarily how the word is used in the New Testament. It was with the jailer. The earthquake happens, and he supposed that all the prisoners had fled. But was that true? It was not. Another, uh, another thing that sort of grabbed me about studying this out this week, besides just the meaning of that word, was the fact that it's never said the Bible always makes a big deal out of a resurrection. And that's never pointed out as such in it. Luke doesn't mention it later on. It's usually made a much bigger deal when that takes place. So is it possible he was? I do. I do. I, I found a couple of commentators that I respect a lot who lean towards the fact that he was actually resurrected here. Um, 
And uh, so anyhow, he is taken out. They suppose he is dead. And the Bible says the brethren, uh, uh, the, the believers there gathered around him. And as they stood around him, the guy gets up. Now that's a miracle in itself regardless of a resurrection. He was just stoned. And just like that, he stands up. I mean, incredible. And look what Paul does. He was just stoned. He goes right back into the city. He went right back in. He didn't go and hide. He went right back in. I mean, it's literally, we're probably talking 30 minutes after they just stoned him, left him for dead. He stands up and he walks right back into the city. The next day, he went on a 30-mile journey. He was just stoned. That's a miracle in itself. <clears throat> now listen, as we serve Christ, we do have to endure suffering. Think how the Lord used this here, though. All right? That does not give us names here in Acts chapter 14 who stood round about him. But I believe we do see some of those names in Acts chapter 16. It doesn't say they were there, but it's very, very likely they were. One man in particular named Timothy who would have been one of his converts there. This is the place where Timothy came to know the Lord. Think of the effect this would have had on him and the believers there. One, to see what this man was willing to go through. To see uh, the, the miracle of him, uh, again, just recovering instantly from being stoned. And saying, I need to get out of here. He goes, let's head back in the city. Let's head back in the city. <clears throat> this no doubt would have had great effect on their life. There are times when you are faced with those times of suffering, but when you stay faithful and do what's right, it has an effect on others. So Paul endured suffering. The Bible says, All that, will, all that shall of God in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. One commentator said this of Paul's suffering. He said, I'll, I'll quote him. Such sufferings and trials, it costs to establish that religion in the world which, was, which has shed so many blessings on man, which now crowns us with comfort, which saves us from the abominations and degradations of idolatry here and from the pains of hell hereafter. And he was talking about how we benefit from Paul willing to suffer for the faith. How, how because of these churches getting established and what the Lord was doing, how we're not worshiping pagan gods right now. We're not the one thinking that life is about Zeus or some stone god. We actually know truth. We benefit from what Paul was willing to suffer. We know, we know from chapters like 2 Corinthians chapter 4 how, how Paul would endure just great hardship in his Christian life. But he makes it sound easy there when he's listing all that he went through. And his conclusion is this. I simply stay focused on the eternal. I stay focused on the end. I didn't stay focused on my circumstances. Listen, if you're going to last and persevere and be able to say, I have kept the faith. I have finished my course. You're going to have to stay focused on the eternal, not on circumstances. Ask Peter when he got out of the boat. Once you get your eyes off the Lord on circumstances, you drop. You drop. So he had to endure suffering, number two. So he, he heads back into the city. Now let's pick it up here in verse 21. 
And when they had preached the gospel, he, went, he left, he departed to Derby, about 30 miles away. It says, and when he had preached the gospel to that city, and had taught many, so they had converts there, they returned again to Lystra, and to Iconium, and Antioch. Here's what he did. Confirming the souls of the disciples, one, and exhorting them to continue to faith, two, and three, that we must, through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God. Let's stop there. So now we have the Apostle Paul. He's willing to endure suffering for it, but he also is endeavoring to strengthen. Paul is going back through all the places he has, he has esteemed converts and tried to establish churches on this first missionary journey. For Paul, get this, he just wasn't willing to give his life for the gospel alone, for their salvation. The man was just as willing to give his life for their growth, to strengthen them. It wasn't just, listen, they've heard the gospel, they put their faith in Christ, I'm out of here. Remember how he left all these cities. He was willing to risk his life for the growth. He heads back to all the cities that literally chased him out, that wanted him dead. Now, I, I personally believe, I, I started thinking about this this week. Think about this. I, I don't think this is a stretch. I don't have a verse on it. Just by looking at what takes place right here, just think about this. I believe the stoning is what allowed him to return to those cities and not have any issues. He was stoned. The Jews are there from where? Antioch and Iconium. Are they not? They're there. They wanted him dead. Little did they know he was going to come back to their town. They didn't know that. So they traveled down. They catch up with him in Lystra. They stoned the guy. Right after they stone him, what does he do? He raises up, he goes right back into the city. You think that freaked him out a little bit? I think it did. I do. I think they're like, oh. I think they're like, we, we need to stay away from him. I do. I think that's very possible as to what took place. Because when he goes back in, what he did when he went back, he had three goals when he went back. That wasn't done in one service. He had to stay for a time frame in each of those places to do what he did. Yet when he left those times, he left on his own choice. I do. I think the Lord possibly used that stoning when he stood right up and went right back into They were like, oh my goodness. Look at this. <clears throat> so he endeavors now to strengthen so he heads back to preach the word of God more. And listen, the, the, the truth is, even what we're doing here, even as we assemble right now, we can tie this into Ephesians chapter 4 with the perfecting of the saints. You know what this is about? This is about the strengthening and the exhorting. Right now, what we do three times a week, we need it. We need to be strengthened. We need to be exhorted. That happens by the word of God. That's exactly what Paul was doing. Because what, what helps us to grow? As you desire the sincere milk of the that you may grow thereby. I got news for you. We could entertain you all day long. We could change music and make it just more popular. and It would make you feel good while we're doing it. But know what, what it won't do for you? Is grow you in the faith. So when you go back and you have that fight with your spouse, you have no strength. You have no strength. You're battling something at work, you have no wisdom. You need to be strengthened in the faith, to be exhorted. So Paul had the three, three goals here he wanted to do. He wanted to confirm the souls. This is not dealing with some 
confirmation service at all. The word means to strengthen and to support. He wanted to strengthen them. He wanted to get back and use the Word of God to help them grow thereby. So he went back and he taught, he preached, he was strengthening. It's something that we all need. He also wanted to exhort, it says. Confirming the souls. Again, the word means to strengthen and support. Of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith. He wanted to encourage them. The truth is, the Christian life isn't easy. We're constantly battling our flesh. We're battling this world. And we need the encouragement. We need those times for people to say, no, just keep on going. We need that. We need the assembling of ourselves together. That in itself is an encouragement to say, just to keep on going. There's battles and games and all, all kinds of stuff at play. You don't know what you're going to face this week. You need this now. You need the service tonight. You need that on Wednesday to strengthen you, to exhort you, to say, listen, keep on going. Do what's right. <clears throat> he wanted to strengthen. He wanted to exhort. And then he wanted them to know, thirdly, what he put right up there was strengthening and exhorting was what they needed to know was this. There's going to be much tribulation in this life. He's letting them know, different than the modern gospel of our day. Boy, if you, if you, if you just come to faith in Christ, you're gonna, you're just, your life's gonna, you're gonna know peace. Paul says, you know what? Your life's about ready to get really hard. That's what's gonna happen. Because now all of a sudden, and think with where they live in. We, we haven't quite, uh, we're getting there rapidly right now, but for the most part, in the history of this nation, for the most part, when you converted, you were in a Christian culture. That's been so rare in the history of the world. For the most part, when you convert it, just like them here in the first century, they're in the middle of this pagan, idolatrous, wicked culture. And now, all of a sudden, they're going very contrary to it. Tribulation is going to hit. Men are going to lose their jobs. Families are going to be divided. It's going to get really difficult. Paul didn't try to deceive or manipulate to try and get a convert. He was honest. We've got to let him know it's through much tribulation we enter the kingdom of God. By the way, think when he's going back, I mean, maybe when the Lord raised him up, he completely healed his, his entire body. I, I, I believe also due to some verses going later on into Galatians or is that Corinthians, that he had some marks on his body from this. That you knew when he showed up, man, what happened to him? What happened to him? <clears throat> it certainly is unfair to a new Christian to simply let them know oh, it's, all, it's, it's all easy now. But remember this, though. This is very true. If you don't have trouble and, and that, that suffering, those difficulties in life, you'll never know victory. You'll, you'll, you'll never understand that. It takes the valleys to understand what the mountaintop is actually about. Thirdly, they had an expectation in the sovereign. Look at verse number 23. So when Paul went back, he has his three goals, and here's the fourth thing that he did. He organized. He says, And when they had ordained them elders in every church, and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. So Paul had a love for these people. I mean, him and Barnabas, they were converted under their ministry. He knew they were facing much tribulation. 
He knew they had battles ahead. He's there preaching and teaching. And now he begins to organize to try and help this church. And in doing so, what we see here is he had an expectation in the sovereign. What I mean by that is we see here his faith in God. His faith in God. So when Paul goes back, what he's doing is he's looking to see who could pastor the church. Who is it that I could put in a position to pastor this church? Now, what I enjoyed about studying that this week is the word ordained. The actual word means this, basically to vote by a raise of hands. Interesting, isn't it? It denotes, to quote, the stretched out hand, as was customary to elect to office. The word referring to an election, an appointment, and of course of the elders of the pastors here in this context. So what is likely to have taken place here, based on how that word is used, is this. It certainly is Paul who recognized who's to be the pastor of the church. But I believe Paul brought him before the church and he said, let's vote. Who's in favor of so and so? And Paul's saying, this is the guy you need. Does that make sense to you? I mean, the, I mean, isn't it amazing how the Lord still works in our churches today? Incredible. Along the exact same process. So Paul installed pastors in the churches. A shepherd to feed. And then he has time of prayer and fasting for the church and how important that would have been. As no doubt, just like he talks about it, um, when he talked about his time later on in the book of Ephesus, no doubt with tears and, and praying for them. But then he commended them to the Lord. This is where you see Paul had to have his expectation in the sovereign, in God. He's following what he wrote in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6. Being confident of this very thing, that he which have begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Jesus Christ. He knew, I'm leaving. I'm gone. I have to commend you to the Lord. I have to trust God in this. Boy, as we serve him, there's going to be many times, really, that's what the whole life is about, not many times, that's, that's how our life should be. Trusting God. And then lastly, verses 24 through 28, he ended on the standard. Let's go to verse 24. It says, And they passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down into uh, Adelaide, and then sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. When they were come... And gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them, and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. Notice the end of verse 26 right there. They get back to Antioch, and it says, For the work which they fulfilled. He ended this thing on the standard that was given to him by God. He finished what God gave him to do on this trip. He accomplished it. It was done. The Lord had called Paul and Barnabas, going back to Acts chapter 13, to head out to begin to establish Gentile churches to preach the gospel to every creature. That's exactly what they did. They met the standard. They fulfilled that. He left. There are now, as he gets back to Antioch, he can tell them there are other churches right now in place with pastors present. 
when he was leaving Derby, by the way, this is interesting, think about this. I learned this as I was studying this. When he was leaving Derby, there was a pass he could have taken right to Tarsus where he was from. He could have said, you know what? I had been stoned, I have been beaten, I have been whipped on this trip. I'm just going to go take a break. I'm going to head to Tarsus. That's where I grew up. I'm going to head to Tarsus. That's where I grew up. He could have just went, when he left Derby, there's a little route he could have took coming back through Pisidia, come straight down to a coastal area, and went straight back to Antioch. He didn't have to return to strengthen. He could have said, nope, that's not it. But he wanted to fulfill what God gave him. In other words, with Paul, what that tells us is, and this is key, it wasn't about checking a box. He had been there. He had preached. He got kicked out. He could have just said at this point, I'm just going back to Antioch now. Instead of returning to every single place that persecution hit and he was thrown out. He said, I'm just going to go back to Antioch now. Let's just head back to Antioch now. It wasn't about just checking his box. It was about fulfilling what God gave him to do. He had an understanding. Churches needed to be established. He could have went back and reported, I have several churches established. But that's a danger. We see that missionary state just going around just, just so they have something to say. Yet when you get there, you can see, wait, that's not an established church. By no means. Paul wasn't simply about the report. He wasn't about checking the box. He was about fulfilling what God gave him to do in life. <clears throat> So after going back to all the churches he started, he heads for the journey back to Antioch. He stopped. He preaches in Perga, which remember, we didn't have any record of him preaching there. So when he comes back through, he preaches there. He says, you know, I stayed there. Again, we, we believe he was sick there. He probably had malaria at that, that point in time. And so he stops. He preaches in Perga. Then he heads to the, heads to the port. He gets on a boat. He heads back to Antioch. Now keep in mind, Paul had been gone since the time they left we're looking at about, this is one of his shorter trips. We're looking at about 18 months of time have passed since they have seen Paul and Barnabas. But could you, could you just imagine they're in Antioch of Syria. There's a significant church there. Remember how huge it became. That church exploded. Paul and Barnabas show back up. I think they looked worn out. I think from all the persecution, being stoned, the beatings, I, I don't think they ate that well. But they're back. They've returned. And what a joyous time that would have been. So now what happens is you have the very first mission conference in, in the New Testament. The very first mission conference takes place. Paul assembles the church. So the thousands upon thousands gather, waiting to hear what God did with this very first missionary journey of a local church under the direction of God, sending out men for the establishment, uh, for the preaching of the gospel and the establishment of churches. And Paul's saying, it's done. We did it. It's fulfilled. He told them how they got to Cyprus. 
how they traveled through that island and they came across the governor wanted to hear from the very governor of the island. But there was a demon-possessed magician there who was hindering us. And he told them the story of it. He told them how the governor himself converted. I think there's a little bit of rejoicing at that. And then, no doubt, when they, when they got to the mainland there, in Pamphylia, with modern-day Turkey, and then they traveled up into Pisidia, they all would have known, which way did you go? We wanted to go into Galatia. We know the Lord was leading us into Galatia. But that route is so dangerous. And then he told them of Antioch of Pisidia, of, of, of how there were converts and people believing. But again, the persecution hit. How the Jewish leaders rose up leaders of the community, devout women there, and they threw them out. How they came to Iconium, preaching there, and there was converts there. And how all of a sudden, there was, there was talk behind the scenes taking place. Another style of persecution. Paul staying faithful, though, and not leaving and not leaving. Ignoring it and ignoring it. Up until the time uh, um, they tried to kill him, and he left. Going down to Lystra and telling him how they tried to deify him and Barnabas. But then they stoned him. And how he just got up and went right back into the city. Headed down to Derby, a 30 mile walk, the day after he was stoned. And all the Lord did there with converts there. And then how he went back to every single place, spent time at all of them, seeking out a man who God had his hand on to pastor it. And we ordained him in each of those churches. You can imagine the rejoicing that was taking place. And again, what I want us to see here is how he ended on the standard. He fulfilled it. In other words, God called him and he did it. It's just not the initial surrender to God's call. It's doing it. Those things that the Lord has put in your heart to do, do it. Follow him. Do what's right. Finish it. End on the standard so that at the end of time you can say, I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And to do that, like Paul, your life can't be about you. It can't. What has your desire and your passion has to be the Lord. That's what will direct you to be able to endure suffering. To actually care about strengthening other believers. To endeavor to strengthen. <clears throat> so he had fulfilled it. He did what was right. Now as we conclude, I want you to think about this. When Paul headed out, whenever he would enter in and begin to preach, it's going to be true in the second missionary journey, the third missionary journey, everywhere he went. It's our responsibility too. He always started with the gospel. That is the foundation. That is what it's all about. That is where conversion lies. So you see, you're not born into a Christian home. I mean, excuse me, let me say that. You can be born into a Christian home, but the fact that you're born into a Christian home doesn't make you a Christian. The fact that you attend church doesn't make you a Christian. We're going to see that some of these very churches right here in Galatia, false teachers would come in. And deceive them. False teachers will come into these very churches that Paul has just left. 
So much so that Paul fears for all of them. Because he knows they departed from the gospel itself. Well, what happened? They came in. Oh, they said, yes, Christ died for you, was buried and rose again from the dead. And yes, we need that. They proclaimed it. The devil always includes truth with his lies. But they added to it. They added works. Which is evidence of salvation and proof of salvation, of which if it's not present, there is no salvation. Where the devil came in, though, was he had people actually putting faith in works in addition to Christ. That's where the deception lied. So you understand this. One day you will stand before God in judgment. The Bible tells us that in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, is appointed in one side, but after this, the judgment. Follow me. Don't miss this. You will stand before God in judgment. That day will come. When he judges you, we know what the, what the basis of it is. The Bible tells us. He's going to judge you based upon his law. The problem is this. You've broken his law just like I have. You're guilty. You'd be judged as a liar. You'd be judged as an idolater. Anytime you put anything before God, that's idolatry. You'd be judged as a covet, uh, filled with covetous. You'd be judged as an adulterer, as a murderer. So I've never murdered anybody. Christ said this. If you ever looked on your brother with anger without a cause, you're in danger of judgment. The verse before what he was talking about was the commandment, thou shalt not kill. God said, I'm going to judge it at the heart. We all would be guilty. For all have sinned. So you're going to stand before God. He's going to judge you and you're guilty. That's a problem for you. Because we know from Scripture, 100% of those, 100%, who are stand before God and found guilty are cast into a lake of fire. 100%. You're guilty. If you're found guilty, you're in a lake of fire. But listen, this is where the great part comes in. The Bible says God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God had to find a way to satisfy holiness, justice, with His love and with His grace. It's not just you have your own thing worked out with God and God knows your heart. You're believing a lie. That's not how this is going to work out for you. You're going to be judged of God. God's not willing that you should perish. But we do know this. The majority of people, Christ said it himself, few there be that find it. There's few that find salvation. What God did to save you from that judgment is incredible. This is what God did. Think about this. It's amazing. God himself became a man, God the Son, 2,000 years ago. So think about this. Here's the creator himself. He becomes a man. He lives on this earth 30-some years as a man. Did he sin? Not once. Perfect. So now you have, for the first time in all of human history, a man who has fulfilled the law. The Bible refers to him as the second Adam. Because we sin because of the first Adam. We have his same nature in us. We all do wrong. So the second Adam here, that's Jesus Christ, but he is perfect. So get this. So the first time in all of human history, you have a man who could stand at judgment day and the father could say, you're innocent. You're perfect. You meet the standard. But you know what he did? This is incredible. This is where the cross comes in. He went to that cross to take your guilt, to take your sin upon himself, to take your place in judgment. But that's not all. 
at the same time to give you his perfect life. The Bible says this, speaking of the cross, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So when I say that Christ died for you, which he did, what I'm saying is this, he literally took your place in judgment. For the Father hath made him to be sin for us. He took your sin upon himself. And the Father judged him in your place. That satisfied justice. But that's not all. The verse goes on to say how he gives you the righteousness of God. He then gives you his perfect life. So think about that. If he takes all of your sin, and he gives you his perfect life, so all of your filthiness, everything, every time you ever broken God's law, is now upon Jesus Christ, and he was judged in your place, and he's given you his perfect life, and you stand before God in that condition... It looks as if you have never sinned. That's God's requirement. Perfection. And he made it possible. You see, well, now get this. Christ died for all. All men. But his death isn't effectual for all. You say, well, how, how does it save me then from judgment? Through repentance and faith. The Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. A perfect example is when Christ died on the cross. Two men died with him. Both make a prayer asking for help. Christ asking to be saved. Christ ignored one and he saved the other. The first one said this, if thou be the Christ, get us down. Christ never responds to that man. What he prayed for was to be saved from his circumstance. The other man we're going to see never prays to come down from the cross. The other one tells him, though, you need to be quiet. We deserve to be here. This man, listen to what he says, has done nothing wrong. He's perfect. And then he says to the Lord, he puts his faith in the only one who could save him. Lord, when thou comest into thy kingdom, remember me. The Lord turned him and said, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise. Think of what just took place. This man was afraid of what? He's dying. He knows, I'm a dead man. I'm hours away from death right now. What he's afraid of was facing the Creator. He knew how guilty he was. How horrible he was. And he decided to place his faith in the only one who could save him, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment he did that, he was saved. Why? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. If you will come to Christ in repentance and faith, he will save you. It's, it's, it, that repentance means a change in mind which results in a change of action and seeing the direction sin is taking you. Wait, this is... And, and not wanting that. It's, it's repenting... <coughs> Excuse me. Then water. <coughs> it is repenting from whatever you've been trusting in to save you. It is not adding this to what you already believe. It's not saying, I'll do that, but I also believe it was my baptism. No, listen... Place your faith in Christ alone. Him only. Salvation is in Him. 
He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Salvation is in Christ alone. You turn to Him and He will save you. With heads bowed and eyes closed.